should be on page 950 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. The angel of the church at Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, thy tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of the things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. You shall be tried and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death. And I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. Let's pray. Title of the message is A Faithful Church. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come this morning with a desire to hear, to grow, and to learn, to be the kind of church you want us to be. Father, in America we have largely been shielded from the sort of issues the church in Smyrna is dealing with. The world feels different now. And I don't know how much longer we'll be shielded from the sort of difficulties they faced because of their faithfulness to Jesus and His Gospel. Father, the message that You gave to Smyrna is the message You would give to us if those sort of difficulties are coming our way. It would be, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Overcome, and you'll not be hurt by the second death. Lord, as we look at what Jesus said to this church, this suffering church, we desperately need your Spirit to give us ears to hear. The idea of enduring suffering, persevering through it, being faithful in the midst of it, Our flesh doesn't like that. Our flesh doesn't want to. Our flesh wants us to take the easy way in all things, to justify it, to make excuses for why we can take the easy path. But that's not, that's not real. That's not you. Not in any way. So let your Holy Spirit take your word today and and let Him use it like a plow to plow up the fallow ground of our hearts. So the good seed of your word would sink deep in and it would bring forth good fruit for your glory. Help us to be a people who are founded upon the rock of your word, who are rooted deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know a people who worship a Savior who died painfully and miserably for their salvation probably not going to always live easy, comfortable lives. Let us be willing to follow the example of our Savior. Let us be willing to follow the example of Smyrna. No matter what comes our way in the coming years, let us be a people so devoted to Jesus we would be faithful unto death. That was what was required of us. Fill me with your spirit this morning. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your word in your ways for your glory. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, my Savior. Amen. 
You may be seated. Smyrna was a prosperous church, a prosperous city, uh, and a beautiful city, 35 miles north of Ephesus. The beauty and prosperity of Smyrna led it to label itself as the glory of Asia. Smyrna considered itself to be number one, the number one city in the Roman Empire for emperor worship. They had a temple dedicated to Dia Roma, the goddess of Rome. Well, what had happened is over time, the Roman emperor became the embodiment of Rome and Romans began to worship Caesar. Now, initially, emperor worship was done just to unite the Roman Empire. And it was done as a as a demonstration of gratitude to Rome for the peace and the prosperity and the civility it had brought to the world. It was also voluntary in the early days. But as time went on, it went from being voluntary to mandatory. And here's how emperor was worshipped. Once a year, everyone who lived in a Roman province was required to go to a temple dedicated to the emperor. They would take a pinch of incense. They would offer it on the fire as worship. And as they did, they would declare, Caesar is Lord. This was seen as a pledge of allegiance and devotion to Rome. For for meeting this requirement, they were giving a certificate proving their allegiance and devotion to God, Caesar, and country, Rome. Now, refusal to do this was seen as being disloyal to Rome and had you labeled as a potential traitor. The, The consequences for failing to offer this pinch of incense to Rome or to Caesar could be the loss of job. It could be the loss of your home. It could be even the loss of your life. If they burned the pinch of incense and they said Caesar is Lord, they could go about their lives wherever they wanted to and they could worship whatever God they wanted. Caesar did not demand exclusive allegiance. Just some worship once a year to prove your loyalty and your devotion to Rome and Caesar. Now, despite the consequences for failing to take part in emperor worship by burning incense to Caesar and saying Caesar is Lord, this was something the disciples of Jesus could not do. As I said, Smyrna considered itself to be number one in emperor worship. Therefore, they took seriously those who would not do it. Now, the reason the disciples of Jesus in this day would not do it is because Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. They would not pledge their allegiance to another. They would not pledge their allegiance to anything in that way. Jesus was Lord and he was owed and he was to be given all of their allegiance and no one else. Now, the people in Smyrna, the the ruling government in Smyrna, not only frowned upon the Christians here, the disciples here who refused to worship Caesar. They also sought to make their lives very, very difficult. So in this city, which is very wealthy, is very sort of affluent, it is also very hostile to the Christian faith. There is a small church of fully devoted disciples of Jesus who refuse to take part in emperor worship regardless of whatever consequences it brought into their lives. Now, the letter to the church at Smyrna is the shortest of the seven letters. Smyrna is one of two churches receiving only commendation and no correction from Jesus. What we see in verse 10 is the heart of the letter. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. You shall be tried. You shall have tribulation. And be thou faithful unto death. And I will give thee a crown 
of life. So they're suffering already. Jesus' message is it's going to get worse. It's pretty strong. Imagine you've lost your house. You've lost your job. You've lost your ability to work because of your faithfulness to Jesus. Things are almost as bad as you could imagine they could ever be. And Jesus sends you a letter saying, it's been bad. It's going to get worse. And then he tells you what to do in the midst of the worst. He doesn't say let up. He doesn't say back up. He doesn't say shut up. He doesn't say go underground and hide. He doesn't say do any of the things which which we might think he would say. Save yourselves. Leave the city. Go underground so no one sees you. Pretend that you're good Roman citizens. Instead, he tells them, you be faithful unto death. That is, those are strong words. Now, his reason for telling them to be faithful unto death is based upon what he will give them. He will give them a crown of life and they will not be hurt by the second death. What he will give them for overcoming is based upon what he has secured for them through his life, his death and his resurrection, the gospel. This is the hope they had from the gospel. Right. And it's important to understand to notice here the hope they had in the gospel that Jesus himself gave them about the gospel. It wasn't going to save them from suffering. The hope Jesus gave them about the gospel wasn't going to save them from persecution and death. What it would do would give them the courage to be faithful unto death. Hope in the gospel would free them from fear of suffering, from fear of persecution, from fear of dying. So they would have the courage necessary to be faithful unto death if that's what they were called to experience. So from that idea comes our key thought for the day. The hope of the gospel gives us the courage to be faithful unto death. Now, while the idea of the hope of the gospel giving us courage to be faithful unto death is always important. I believe we are entering a time where it will be especially important. I believe there are difficult days ahead for the church of Jesus Christ here in America. I think we're probably long ways away from physical persecution for our faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel. But we are not far away from our faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel being costly for us in our lives in various ways. I don't believe we're far away from our faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel making our lives difficult in sort of a day to day fashion. And when those times come. Jesus's words to us, they will be these words. His words to us won't be for us to back up or us to let up or us to shut up or us to go underground or us to pretend to be something we're not. It will be for us to be faithful unto death if that's what faithfulness requires of us. And the only way we will have the courage to remain faithful unto death is if we are grounded in the gospel and the hope it gives. If we are going to be grounded in the gospel and the hope it gives, we must know the gospel and we must believe the gospel. And to know the gospel and to believe the gospel, we must know Jesus 
and we must believe Jesus. For you cannot separate Jesus from the gospel. There is no gospel without Jesus, and Jesus came to give us the gospel. Any separation of the two is it does damage to both. So what does it mean to know Jesus and to believe Jesus? Well, first we must know Jesus. As is always the case in the seven letters, Jesus begins by revealing something about himself, who he is and what he has done. In this letter, Jesus reveals four aspects of who he is and what he's done. First, Jesus is eternal. Verse 8, I am the first and the last, he says. Jesus reveals himself as the first and the last. By revealing himself as the first and the last, Jesus is saying he is eternal. Jesus was around before in the beginning, and he will be around after the last amen is spoken. Part of the idea of Jesus being eternal, the first and the last, He is worthy of greater loyalty than any earthly king and any earthly kingdom. Why? Because the oldest earthly nation is but a blip in comparison to Jesus. Because every earthly nation and ruler will eventually fall and pass from the scene. And when they do, Jesus will still be standing. Because Jesus' kingdom will eventually conquer every nation on earth. How foolish... Would these disciples in Smyrna have been to trade the kingdom of God for the kingdom of Rome? How foolish would these disciples in Smyrna have been to trade Jesus for Caesar? Rome has fallen. Caesar is dead. But Jesus still rules and Jesus still reigns and his kingdom is still advancing on the earth. This is true for us in our day as well. How foolish would we have to be to trade the kingdom of God for any or even all of the nations of the earth? How foolish would we have to be to trade Jesus for any earthly leader? Nations rise and nations fall, but the kingdom of God remains. Political leaders come and political leaders go, but Jesus remains. Long after every nation of our day is been reduced to rubble, Jesus will still be standing and Jesus will still be reigning. Long after every leader of our day has been put in the ground, Jesus will still be ruling and Jesus will still be reigning. Jesus is eternal. So do we know Jesus as the eternal King over kings and Lord over lords? If so... We will have the courage to let go or lose any earthly possessions, even our lives, if need be, for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. But if we do not, then in a crisis moment, we will waffle. We will deny Jesus. We will betray Jesus or we will compromise his gospel in order to save ourselves or to save our possessions. We must know Jesus is eternal. Secondly, Jesus has conquered death. He was dead and he is alive. He reveals himself to be the one, the only one who has died and risen and never to die again. Jesus being the only one who has died and yet lives would be particularly meaningful to a people who were suffering and facing potential death for their faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel. Jesus was speaking to them as one who understood what it was 
to be persecuted for his devotion to the Father's will. Jesus was speaking to them as one who understood what it was to die at the hands of a persecuting enemy. But Jesus had risen. And his resurrection and continual life was a demonstration. Death isn't really the end. As we saw in Revelation 1 and 5, Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. The first to rise, never to die again, but not the last. Since Jesus died and rose again, the day will come when death will be swallowed up in victory. Disciples of Jesus can courageously be faithful unto death because Jesus has conquered death and one day we will as well. So do we know Jesus as the one who has conquered death? If so, we will have the courage to let go or lose any earthly possession, even our lives, for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. If not, then in a moment of crisis we will waffle, We will deny Jesus, we will betray Jesus, or we will compromise his gospel in order to save ourselves or our possessions. We must know Jesus has conquered death. Jesus is omniscient. Verse 9, Jesus starts with, I know. And he tells this in, in every letter, so we'll cover this over and over again. But in this one, it is particularly important. To know Jesus is omniscient, he knows everything about everything, is always good. But it is particularly helpful to know this, that he knows everything about you when you're in a moment of trial and suffering and hardship. Jesus is omniscient where his disciples in Smyrna and in Gaiman are concerned. Now, can you imagine how comforting this thought was to a church Filled with suffering saints. Now I've never been persecuted for my faith in Jesus Christ. Or my devotion to the gospel. But I have suffered at times. Gone through trials and hardships in my life. And I know that in this time. It is easy to feel alone. It is easy to feel Jesus isn't hearing my prayers. He doesn't know what's going on. He isn't present and at work in my situation. And it's going to be the same probably for all of us. In these times, the world, the flesh and the devil will seek to convince us Jesus either does not care or Jesus does not know about what's going on in our lives. And Jesus' message to us, to his disciples, his disciples in Smyrna and his disciples in Gaiman is, I know. Jesus has absolute knowledge of every aspect of our lives. He knows everything About everything which goes on. Now in verse 9, Jesus gives some very specific ways. He has this first-hand knowledge of our lives. Jesus knows our works. For I know thy works. Everything they had ever done in the name of Jesus was seen by Jesus. Nothing went unnoticed. Nothing went uncared for. He was aware. He saw. He knew about it. Now, again, this is one of those things that even in the best of times, it's great to know Jesus sees and Jesus cares. But it is tremendous to know in the worst times, Jesus sees and Jesus cares. Jesus sees every time we share the gospel. Jesus sees every time we work on our jobs as unto him. Jesus sees every time we turn the other cheek. Jesus sees every time we choose forgiveness. Jesus sees every time we choose to love our enemies. 
Jesus sees when we choose to work as peacemakers. Jesus sees when we use our spiritual gift. Jesus sees everything about everything which happens in our life. Jesus knows our works. Jesus knows our tribulation. I know thy works and tribulation. The word translated as tribulation refers to the pressure of crushing affliction. Right? It, in one of my commentaries, it, it mentioned like a crushing weight on you. Not like dropped on you to squish you like a bug, but set upon you to slowly suffocate you to death. And the commentary said this is how the disciples in Smyrna felt. The opposition they were facing, the tribulation they were facing, it, was, it felt like it was crushing them. The stress and the pressure and the opposition was so strong, it felt like it was crushing the life out of them. And Jesus knew all about it. Jesus knows our poverty. I know thy poverty. Now, there are multiple Greek words for the word poverty. They range from what we would call the working class poor, those who have enough for today but no extra, to those who were destitute. The word used to describe the disciples in Smyrna is destitute. They had nothing. Their faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel had cost them everything. They had literally they had nothing. In their lives, everything had been taken, everything had been lost, simply because they were faithful to Jesus and His gospel. But Jesus saw. He saw them living in a city filled with worldly wealth and living in destitution because of faithfulness to Him. And Jesus knows our opposition. It says the disciples in Smyrna were suffering from a the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Disciples of Smyrna endured all manner of opposition because of their devotion to Jesus and his gospel. Aside from the political or the physical persecution, they also endured the opposition of slander. What Jesus is referring to here with the synagogue of the Jews is slander, not the physical, but the what people were saying about them. Now, the slander disciples of Jesus faced in the Roman Empire took many forms. Disciples of Jesus were accused of being sexual deviants. In the early days of the church, they referred to their gatherings as agape feast. Because when they met, they ate together. And they used the word agape, which is the Greek word for love. One of the Greek words for love. Because Jesus said they were to love one another as he had loved them. Well, what the, those who opposed the disciples, who opposed the church, did was they said their agape feasts were these wicked sex parties and they accused them of being these sexual deviants. Disciples of Jesus were accused of being atheists because they would not worship the gods of Rome. It wasn't that they were atheists. They knew there was only one God and his name wasn't Zeus or Jupiter. They were disciples of Jesus were accused of being homewreckers at times when people turned to Jesus. The division between families was so stark that they divided asunder. Jesus again warned against this, though. Sometimes husbands left wives, wives left husbands, children abandoned their parents, parents abandoned their children. And what the accusers against the church did was they said this was their goal. They were trying to rip apart your marriage. They were trying to move your children out of your home and, and to move them away. They were accused of being arsonist. Disciples of Jesus were accused of setting fire to Rome. Disciples of Jesus were accused of being traitors. Their refusal 
to worship Rome, to worship Caesar, calls them to be accused of being traitors, disloyal, unpatriotic. Much, much more they faced because of their devotion to Jesus, their faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel. Now, it's interesting in Smyrna, the majority of their devotion, their opposition here comes from the Jews, from a synagogue. Now, there was a large and influential synagogue in Smyrna. Uh, it was very influential because they were wealthy and they gave a lot of money to the city for various projects. And as we know, in American politics, favor follows donations. Now, Jesus calls this not a synagogue of God, but a synagogue of Satan. The lesson here for us is there will be times when those who profess to worship the same God we worship will slander us for our faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel because they are not what they seem. They are not disciples of Jesus. I think we see this in many ways now. It's going to get increase more and more as time goes on. So do we know Jesus as the omniscient one? If so, we will have the courage to let go or lose any earthly possession, even our lives, for the sake of faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel. If not, then in a crisis moment, we will waffle. We will deny Jesus. We will betray Jesus. Or we will compromise his gospel in order to save our lives or to save our possessions. Christian history is filled with stories of disciples of Jesus dying. Because of their faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel. And just as an aside here, it's not just Christian history. I have an app on my iPad called um, Open Doors. And they talk about Christian persecution. There, There were people killed last night in various parts of the world for their faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel. It's not just in Christian history. It is in modern times as well. Of course, the media doesn't care because they were only Christians after all. But these Christians, these disciples of Jesus, who have and do die for their faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel, had the courage to be faithful unto death because they knew. They knew who Jesus was. They knew what Jesus had done. Knowing who Jesus is, knowing what Jesus has done is absolutely key. Because if Jesus is just a guy and the gospel is just a teaching of a guy who died and stayed dead, then being faithful unto death for him and his message makes zero sense whatsoever. But if Jesus is the almighty God, the eternal God who conquered death, who is omniscient and knows everything about us then faithfulness unto death is the only rational response. We better dig deep in our lives in the coming days, dig deep in our Bibles in the coming days to be sure we know what God's Word says about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Because in the moment of crisis, the temptation... Because right now, we're all Peter. I would never deny you, Lord. But right now, we're in a safe place filled with people who believe like we do. Right now is not the crisis moment. What we would say right now means almost nothing in all honesty. In the crisis moment, what we believe, what we know about who Jesus is, is going to come out. 
we had, if we want to be faithful unto death, we had better dig deep into God's word and take out and let it root in our heart who he is and what he's done. We must know Jesus and then we must believe Jesus. Their commitment to Jesus had cost them everything. They were poverty stricken after all. They'd lost jobs, businesses, social status, some cases families, some had probably even died. Many of these people had seen their, according to some of my commentaries, had seen their homes plundered by vandals while the government turned a blind eye. Their reputations had been destroyed by the slander. Their only crime, their only crime, and this is again a key thing, was faithfulness to Jesus and His gospel. And what we have to realize with this is they could have stopped all of this suffering at any time. Here's what they would have had to have done. Stop in their faithfulness to Jesus. All they would have had to have done was renounce Jesus and walk away. Things would have pretty much returned to normal, maybe not immediately, but over time had they done this. And what makes this even more incredible is they wouldn't have even had to have meant it. Not really, because humans can't see the heart. They could have publicly renounced Jesus and then privately worshipped Him late in the dark where nobody could see. They could have crossed their fingers and taken a pinch of incense and thrown it on the fire and said, Caesar is Lord. And then got their certificate and went on about their lives worshipping Jesus quietly. I mean, Caesar didn't care. Caesar didn't know. Caesar didn't care if they worshipped some other god. It was primarily a pledge of allegiance to Rome. And if they would have pledged their allegiance to Rome, received their certificate, and gone about their lives, it would have been okay for them. But they did not do this. They willingly chose to publicly maintain their faithfulness to Jesus and His gospel, despite the suffering, despite the slander, and despite the coming persecution, which would potentially lead to their death. Why? Because they believed Jesus, not merely believed in Jesus. We too must believe Jesus. Believe what Jesus has said and make life decisions in critical moments based upon what He has said. What has Jesus said? Jesus has said we are rich. Verse 9, I know your poverty, but thou art rich. Despite their financial poverty, Jesus says they were rich. While they had no earthly possessions, they possessed great spiritual and eternal wealth. Here is a key, I think, to the disciples in Smyrna in what they believed. They believed when Jesus said, what? What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and he lose his soul in the process? They understood that they believed it. You know, the Bible tells us there are some things that are infinitely more valuable than anything on this earth, than everything on this earth. Our souls being at the top. What would it ultimately profit us to maintain our reputation? To be worldly accepted? To save our lives from death? Only to lose our souls in the process? Not only did they have their souls, which were of great eternal value. They had the spiritual riches, 
Ephesians 1, 2 Corinthians 6 tells us we have in Jesus. The disciples in Smyrna understood they weren't to lay up for themselves treasures on earth where moth or rust or thieves can destroy. But they were to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven which were safe and eternal. They, they believed. They believed what was being stored in heaven for them through their faithfulness to Jesus and His gospel was greater than what they were losing in the temporal here and now. Do we believe Jesus when He says we are rich because of our souls, because of our spiritual inheritance, because of the treasure laid up for us in heaven? If so, we will have the courage to let go or lose any earthly possessions, even our lives, for the sake of faithfulness to Jesus and His gospel. But if we do not, then in a crisis moment we will waffle, we will deny Jesus, we will betray Jesus, or we will compromise His gospel for the sake of saving our lives or our possessions. Jesus said He is Lord. He tells them they will have trouble for ten days. And the ten days seems awful specific. Now, it does seem that it's going to be a ratcheted up time of persecution. They will suffer. They will be imprisoned. They will be tested. Some of them will likely die. But ten days. What does ten days mean? Does it mean ten literal days? Does it mean ten Roman emperors? Is it just symbolic of a limited amount of time, but not necessarily ten exact days? Does it mean something else? Well, if you've ever read any commentary on Revelation, you know that opinions on everything tend to vary. But here's the overarching truth. Regardless of what this means, the, the specifics, Satan is going to attack them and do this. But the overarching principle is there is a limit to what he can do and how long it can go on. It is limited because Jesus is Lord. Satan does not have free reign to do whatever he wants to do to the disciples of Jesus. He didn't have free reign to the disciples in Smyrna. He doesn't have free reign to the disciples in Gaiman. Jesus is setting very real limits to how long Satan can persecute these disciples in Smyrna. This is important because regardless of how things may seem in our time of suffering, Jesus is always Lord. Jesus is always in control. Satan does not have an unlimited free reign to do whatever he wants to the disciple of Jesus. Think about the story of Job. Twice Satan goes to God, gets permission to go and harass Job. In both instances, one, he had to get permission from God. Secondly, God put very real limits on what Satan could or could not do to Job and to his family. Satan would like us to think he has unlimited power. Satan would like us to think he has unlimited freedom to do whatever he wants to do. But that would be a lie. All things are in his hands. This is why Jesus tells them to fear none of those things. Don't be afraid. Because I am Lord. And they are still in his hands. Do we believe Jesus when he says he is Lord? If so, we will have the courage to let go or lose any earthly possession, even our lives, for the sake, of, uh, the sake of faithfulness to Jesus and His gospel. If not, in a crisis moment, we will waffle, we will deny Jesus, 
We will betray Jesus or we will water down, compromise his gospel to save ourselves or to save our possessions. Jesus said he will reward us. Verse 10, he says if they were, he would give them the crown of life. They were faithful unto death. Now notice the connection. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. Jesus says those who are faithful unto death will receive a reward from him. A crown of life. Now, God's word frequently talks about rewards we're given in the next life for our faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel in this life. And one of the ways the Bible describes these rewards is in the, the picture of a crown. God's word speaks of four different crowns faithful disciples of Jesus can receive. There is the, the incorruptible crown, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, and the crown of glory. Now, I can't explain the total significance of the crown. But I think it's best to understand them in light of Revelation 4.10. Turn over to Revelation 4.10 real quick. We'll be here in a few weeks. We'll go deeper into this. But in verse 10 and 11, it says, The four and twenty elders... Fall down before him that sat upon the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever. Cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are created. Now, if the 24 elders represent all believers of all times, and here's why I think they do. 24 elders, symbolic Twelve Old Testament patriarchs, twelve New Testament apostles. So all believers of all time, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers. And if that's the case, as I believe it is, then the day will come in heaven where all believers will cast their crowns down before Jesus' feet saying, You, O Lord, are worthy. You are worthy. The crowns are given to us as a reward for our faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel in this life. So we can in that life toss them before his feet as an act of worship, recognizing his supreme worth. We recognize the worth of Jesus in this life. So we are faithful to him and his gospel. In the next life, we will also recognize the worth of Jesus. So we will take the crowns given to us and we will throw them at his feet. And we will say, you and you alone deserve praise. You and you alone are worthy of glory. You and you alone are the object of praise. Jesus has said he will reward us. And in this reward, we get to demonstrate to him in a coming day how great and how awesome he truly is. Go ahead and turn back to Revelation 2. So the question, do you believe Jesus when he says he will reward us? If so, we will have courage to let go or lose any earthly possession, even our lives, for the sake of being faithful to Jesus and his gospel, even unto death. But if not, then in a crisis moment, we will waffle. We will deny Jesus. We will dis uh, we will betray Jesus or we will compromise his gospel in order to save ourselves or our possessions. And then finally, Jesus said he will save us. Verse 11, he that overcometh shall not be hurt by the second death. Those who overcome will not be hurt by the second death. 
What? What's the question? What is the second death? Turn to Revelation 20, verse 14. Death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast to the lake of fire. Second death refers to the eternal punishment of hell. The idea of those who overcome will not be hurt by the second death is very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13. But those who endure to the end shall be saved. Now, when you think about it in that term, those who overcome will not be hurt. Those who endure the end will be saved. It begs the question. What happens to those who don't overcome and endure to the end? Well, the obvious answer is they will be hurt by the second death. And they will not be saved in the day of judgment. An interesting passage to connect to this is Revelation 21, verse 7 and 8. So flip over maybe a page. He that overcometh, verse 7, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The fearful, some translations probably say the cowardly. The cowardly will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Who are the cowardly? Context of Revelation, the cowardly are those who let the fear of man keeping them from do the will of God, keep them from being faithful to Jesus. For our text today, the cowardly are those who in a crisis moment choose to save their lives or their possessions rather than be faithful unto death to Jesus. And they who do such things will have their part in the fire in the lake of fire which is the second death. Those who do not endure to the end, those who do not have the courage to be faithful unto death. It looks bleak for what happens to them at the end. And and we could argue all day, were they genuinely saved to begin with? Did they commit apostasy in the process? But ultimately, that's just splitting hairs. Because what we can't debate, what's not up for debate, is what their eternal destiny will be. Those who do not overcome, those who are not faithful unto death, those who do not endure to the end, they will be hurt by the second death. They will not be saved in the day of judgment and they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Do we believe Jesus when He says He will save us? If so, we will have the courage to let go or lose any earthly possession, even our lives, for the sake of His gospel, faithfulness to His gospel and Him. If not, then in a crisis moment, we will waffle, we will deny Jesus, 
we will betray Jesus or we will compromise His gospel in order to save ourselves and our possessions. So the question is to leave us with today. Do you know Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? These are things we we had better settle. These are things we had better be sure are deep in our hearts. We know. Because the days are coming. The Bible, God's word is clear. The days are coming in which it will not be acceptable to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. We're already seeing some of the, the slander that comes out. It's always been, but I read an article this week. And, and I'll close with this. article this week was comparing the, the creation account from the Bible to like the QAnon type conspiracy theories. And the article's point was, just as these conspiracy theories are, are the crazy thoughts of rambling minds, so too is the creation account. And you see what they're trying to do. They're trying to connect biblical truth to crazy spiracy ideas. Now, I believe the Genesis account of creation. So guess what that makes me in the light of that article? Crazy person. If you believe the creation account from Genesis, what makes you a crazy person too? Now, this was a fringe-ish article. But make no mistake, stuff like that is going to become more common. It will be embarrassing to believe the things we believe. It will be embarrassing to say, yes, I do believe God created the world. I do believe Jesus was God in the flesh. I do believe He died for our sins and rose again. The world will try to make it difficult for us to own that. And if we do not know Jesus, who He is and what He's done, we do not believe Jesus in what He said. We will waffle. We will deny Him. We will betray Him. We will water down His gospel for the sake of saving our reputation, our lives, our jobs, our possessions, our relationships, whatever. If we want to be faithful unto death, if we want to receive the rewards Christ has promised us, we had better dig down deep, make sure our lives are firmly built upon the truths of God's word. And we know Jesus, we know him, not know about him, but know him, who he is and what he has done. And we believe him. We believe him enough We're willing to risk for the sake of what He said. We're willing to suffer for the sake of what He said. We're willing to make life decisions others will mock because of what He said. The hope of the gospel, and only the hope of the gospel, will give us the courage to be faithful unto death. Let's stand.